Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Williams, Middlebury, Amherst, Bowdoin, Carleton, Oberlin, Beloit, Pomona, Grinnell. Can you guess what these schools have in common? I'll give you a sec to mull it over. We could take it slowly Or we could get insane No one ever got anywhere By playing it safe This is All Things Grinnell. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Did you figure it out? All of those colleges were founded by Congregationalists, primarily to train future ministers. So what is it about these Congregationalists that they managed to create so many long-lasting and heralded institutions of higher learning? Well, we're going to figure it out. That's coming up next, after I remind you that the information and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of Grinnell College. You wouldn't know it by walking around campus, but Grinnell used to be a religious institution. The college severed its formal ties with the Congregationalist Church long ago, but that legacy remains. Long gone are the required church services, and although we have many students active in religious life on campus, it's easy to forget that Grinnell was founded by a group of Congregationalist ministers known as the Iowa Band. Many have heard the tale of the founding of Grinnell College, or Iowa or Davenport College as it were, But fewer people know about the religious history of the college, so we brought in the big guns for this one. George Drake, alum from the class of 1956, professor and president emeritus, is going to walk us through the religious history of the college and help us understand how Congregationalist beginnings still influence the college today. But first, let's turn back the clocks to 1846, when a group of Congregationalist ministers known as the Iowa Band made their way west. Grinnell was founded by a group that were called the Iowa Band, and it it was 12 initially, and I think 11 actually came out here, graduates of Andover Seminary in Massachusetts. Uh, They were graduates of 1843, and it was not uncommon for seminary students in that period to uh, decide that they would collectively go into missions. And some of them went into foreign missions, and some of them went into what was called home missions, which was along the frontiers of of, uh, the United States or at that that time. At that time, the frontier really was the Mississippi River and and the immediate uh, area just to to the west of the Mississippi, the so-called Trans-Mississippi West. So they uh, decided that they would go into home missions, and it turns out that Iowa would be the uh, appropriate place for them to go, partly because they were abolitionists and there was an effort to settle the West as free territory rather than slave territory, and Iowa was sort of marked out as one of those places that clearly could be a a free territory, so it was Iowa. There were already some home missionaries in this territory. Uh, One of them was named Asa Turner, and he was a graduate of Yale, uh, theological seminary, and so they were in touch with him about coming out, and he was pretty skeptical about whether they would actually come because it was a pretty rough life, and these were, uh, you know, pretty, quote, civilized Easterners that, that were uh, thinking of coming out here. Mm-hmm. What are the distinctive tenets of congregationalism that separate it from other popular denominations of Christianity at this time? Well, this group were congregationalists, and congregationalism was very prominent in New England at that time, particularly Massachusetts. Massachusetts had been settled by Congregationalists. First of all, the so-called Pilgrim Band in 1620 that settled in Plymouth, and then about 10 years later, 
uh, a large number came and created what was called the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was Boston. Uh, and uh, this really involves going into a little bit of, of English history, of all of Reformation history. And I'll take it from there. No disrespect to George, but I'll just give you the skinny on what you need to know about English Reformation history. George Drake's Cliff's Notes, if you will. Let's start with Henry VIII. You've heard of him. Despised and feared by many, loved by maybe a handful at most, some of whom he beheaded. He wants to annul his first marriage, but Pope Clement says no. So Henry separates England from the Catholic Church and takes them into Protestantism. Then, mercifully, Henry dies, and Edward moves England even more Protestant. He dies without marrying or having an heir, so his half-sister Mary comes to the throne. She brought England back to Catholicism, sort of like a tennis match back and forth. <laughs> she dies. She married uh, Philip of Spain, but she had no children. So her half-sister Elizabeth came to the throne in uh, 1558. Not a deeply religious woman herself, Elizabeth really just wanted everybody to be happy. So she created a new church, the Church of England, to encompass both Catholics and Protestants. But some staunch Protestants didn't like that. Still too much Catholicism for them, and a group of them wanted to purify the church of its Catholic elements. You guessed it, the Puritans, which was initially a pejorative term. There's lots of different Puritans, but... Almost the most radical group were the Congregationalists, the Separatists, who were pushing for actually separation from the Church of England as they began to get discouraged about whether Elizabeth would ever change. And they believed not only that you not, did not need an overall structure, but that each individual church was sovereign unto itself. Congregationalism. In other words, the focus is on the congregation or the individual church. Well, Elizabeth still wanted to have one big happy church, but after she dies, King James of Scotland takes the throne. And he solidified the structure that Elizabeth had created, so they began to get really discouraged and decide they got to look to leave England. So they did. Congregationalists packed up and set sail aboard the Mayflower. And then another batch came over in 1630 to establish the Massachusetts Bay Colony. That's this particular group who were, had a lot to do with the foundations of this country and so on. So initially they were very strong. Actually, uh, Ben, the, the last state church in, in America was the Congregational Church in Massachusetts, which was not disestablished till 1819. Hmm. So it was a very, very strong denomination, at least in that area. Now today, in terms of numbers, it's not one of the big Protestant denominations. Uh -huh. It's an important one, but not particularly large. This group of congregational pastors, uh, their congregationalism had a lot to do with their thinking about establishing a college, which is our college today. They called it Iowa College at that time, but uh, it became Grinnell. Yes. So the Iowa Band forms in 1830, and it takes a few years, but Iowa College does form in 1846 in Davenport. Students first enter in 1850. What was the mission of Iowa College at that point? It was predominantly to, to create pastors. Hmm. Um, it may be an exaggeration, but not much, that they just didn't like all these Methodist and Baptist <laughs> stump preachers who were uh -huh. not very well educated. They were going to create a highly educated pastorate. And education was important to be congregationalists. They, they weren't in the Massachusetts Bay. They arrived in 1630. By 1636, they've created a college called Harvard. 
Uh, and, and so right away, the very first collegiate institution in America is a congregational fo- foundation. And Harvard had sort of the idea of, of uh, creating more pastors as well. It's interesting that the, the uh, curriculum was a very challenging curriculum. I'd have a tough time passing that <laughs> curriculum because it was Greek language, Latin language, and mathematics were almost two-thirds of the courses that the students took, thinking that this is the solid foundation for a really intellectual uh, group of ministers. Uh-huh. So, yeah, you mentioned Harvard, Yale, Oberlin, Carleton, Pomona. All those prestigious institutions were at one time affiliated with congregationalism. So what is it about congregationalism that is maybe conducive to education? John Milton was a congregationalist, and Milton believed, and most of the congregations believed, that if you get out of the way with doctrine and uh, in theology and just let, the, let intelligence and training work, you will find your way to God. The congregations were Calvinists, not, a, not Orthodox Calvinists, but Calvin was the precursor from the Reformation that they looked to, and Calvin believed strongly in the study of science because he felt that you find God through nature, and and as did these congregationalists. And they, it's interesting, pretty early on, even though they're, they're, we would think of them as pretty conservative Christians from our point of view today, they believe there's a difference between a church and a college, and there should be academic freedom, room to let the mind roam and, mm-hmm. and challenge and so on in a collegiate institution. I think that has something to do with the quality of the institutions they created. Mm -hmm. So picking back up with Iowa College, we're in Davenport, and there's big trouble in River City, and they pack up and move to Grinnell. Yeah, the trouble uh, was that that the college and the the town of Davenport never did see eye to eye on on a variety of things, but probably most importantly, Davenport was a Mississippi River town which traded with the South, and it was embarrassing to them to have this group of abolitionists in their midst. Mm. And so they treated the college in a cavalier fashion. They drove, uh, established two streets on campus without consulting the college. <laughs> and uh, maybe we wouldn't, as a college, have moved, but for the fact that there was a place uh, and some land that was uh, hospitable to the college. Yeah. So they found Grinnell the open, welcoming arms of J.B. Grinnell, uh, just a little more than 100 miles to the west. And they don't bring with them much from the college besides some books. All the professors stayed in Davenport. So it's almost as if it was more the idea of the college that was transplanted, more so than the college itself. But I imagine J.B. Grinnell had his own plans for what the college would be. And indeed, you mentioned that he had a prospectus written up for his future college before there was even talk of Iowa College coming to Grinnell. So how much of the college's mission from Davenport remained when it came to Grinnell? Well, I would say most of it because uh, Grinnell was a very hospitable location for them. The town of Grinnell had been created in 1854 by J.B. Grinnell, who had uh, decided that he wanted to establish an abolitionist colony somewhere in the Trans-Mississippi West. We've got a place called Saints Rest in Grinnell now, a coffee shop, and it really is uh, because the town was sort of known as a, saints, a group of saints who had, who had established this, this place. Grinnell himself was a congregational pastor and uh, a, a staunch abolitionist and a very entrepreneurial 
type of person. So it wasn't unusual to establish uh, abolitionist colonies, but it wasn't common on the other hand either. And our location here, I'm going to this just very quickly, but it was because Grinnell had been on a railway train, and I think he's in Illinois when it happened, and uh, he had accosted a Missouri slaveholder who actually had his slave with him, and it was getting to be very heated, almost coming to fisticuffs, and a very well-dressed man named Henry Farnham uh, separated, came through the car and separated them, and then after some discussion with with Grinnell, invited him to his private car at the end of the train, and he was, it turns out, was a director of the Rock Island. Grinnell explained what he was about, and Farnham quickly said, well, they're just the right spot for you, and <laughs> contact my, the chief engineer, and he'll give you the coordinates, and there's a flagpole out in central Iowa, so central territory, and uh, our line, the Rock Island line, is going to go through there, and there's probably going to be a north-south line that will intersect with it. That we have as a flagpole right that spot, and anyway, that's anyway that's how uh, Grinnell found found Grinnell. And almost as soon as he established uh, the town, created the town, he set aside 160 acres for his university, and that's now where the Grinnell College campus is. Uh huh. So. You mentioned that Grinnell's religious beliefs were very prominent in the town of Grinnell itself, particularly his stance as um, a staunch abolitionist and also as a teetotaler. Were those tenets of congregationalism or were those more specific to Grinnell himself? Because it was so centered in New England, which didn't depend on slavery, it was it was fairly easy for congregationalists to be early early on abolitionists. And it, it fit their moral principles and so on. Uh, with respect to drink, I think not particularly. I, in fact, I think certainly today there are many denominations who are more anti-alcohol than, than uh, Congregationalists. But certainly Grinnell was, and it was a, co- a covenant was created with along with the town that no alcohol could be served in the community. I can recall when I was president that... Uh, um, no, it's when I was a trustee of the college, before, just before I was president, that the college decided to establish a pub on campus, which was actually in the, in the basement, main basement under, under quad. And at that time, the drinking age was 19. So uh, it could fit with most of the age of the Grinnell College undergraduates. But in order to do that, the college had to petition for an exception to this covenant, <laughs> which, in fact, the city council gave the college uh-huh. as a result of the petition. Does that covenant still exist today? Uh, in the community, uh, no, it does not. But <laughs> but it it wasn't such a hard covenant to keep in those days because the only liquor sold in the state was in state liquor stores. The state had a monopoly on. Uh, at least the pass-through of liquor. Uh-huh. And the, the closest state liquor store was Newton. When I was a student, there were guys with cars would do the Newton run uh-huh. and take orders for, <laughs> for liquor and, and go over to Newton and get it. Um, another thing I was curious about is how did, how did education for women fit into the congregationalism and their understanding and philosophy of education? Um, they were certainly on the cutting edge. They weren't to their absolute cutting edge. I think the Quakers were closer to the, to the real cutting edge in, in allowing women leadership within the church. But Congregationalism was fairly open to leadership from women, certainly not being pastors at that point. Ordination wasn't extended to women. That was really quite recent. But 
they were open to uh, the education of women and in 1856, before the college moved in 1858. The Iowa College established a women's course, uh, which was not the, the Greek-Latin math course, but mm-hmm. it was more he, what we would think of today as humanities, modern languages, music, and so on. Uh, and luckily they had done that because you see, move, the move to, in 1858 to Grinnell, the Civil War begins in 1861, three years later. Most of the men go off to, to war, and so the only reason the college stayed alive at all during the Civil War was because they had this women's course, and mm. it kept the institution viable. Yeah. So as we move along in Grinnell's history, is its relationship to the church uh, primarily dictated by the presidents of the college at the time, or the trustees, or just the the times? Well, the, the, the uh, certainly the relationship was uh, initially uh, and forever, I'd say, in the hands. I mean, any major decision about relationships is a trustee decision. Now, maybe uh, you know, a lot of times. It's a matter of being led by the administration, but ultimately it's the trustees who decide. And on something like this, they would have a, a, a keen interest because initially the college didn't have a president. The trustees were running the college, and they were definitely all on board with congregationalism and the religious nature of the institution. That gradually changed o- over time. And um, when I was a student, that's where we bring ourselves up to the 1950s, the college had just ceased requiring uh, attendance at a weekly chapel service, which was a religious service during the week. Uh, it was still uh, a pretty uh, strong religious presence. We would, I remember Tuesday evening Vespers in Herrick Chapel were very highly attended by students. There was always a chapel service on Sunday. I sang in the choir, so I was always there on Sunday in a religious service. So that was, it, it definitely was present on campus. Uh-huh. But um, the college was gradually easing away from the church, and by the 60s, with student radicalism and so on, and also congregationalism went through a merger then with the Evangelical Reformed Church, a German German uh, Protestant tradition, and there always had been a tr- congregational pastor on the on the board. But when the United Church of Christ was created in the 1950s, that ceased to be an obligation. And this, what was called the State Conference of the Congregational Church of Iowa was at Grinnell. But after the merger took place, it moved to Des Moines. Hmm. And just about that time, the late 50s, early 60s, then the college began to almost formally separate itself from the church, though the formal separation was not complete until my time as president. Uh, the, the college presidents of the Congregational Churches had met yearly uh, in a group called the Council for Higher Education of the, of the Church. But no Grinnell president for several presidencies had gone to that meeting. Mm. I started going. <laughs> my dad was a congregational minister, my grandfather was, so I'm a, a sort of died-in-the-wool congregationalist. And I started going. Well, just at that time, uh, the former evangelical reform colleges, which had come together with the congregational colleges, were getting less money from the church than they had had it before because they had to share the money with the congregational colleges. Well, here's Carleton and Grinnell getting an equal share of that money and being the, the quote, rich colleges uh-huh. in, in the mix. And they were getting less than they got, got before, and they resented it that neither Carleton nor Grinnell would openly recognize their affiliation with the church. Mm. 
So I, I was on a commission that was creating a, a so-called covenantal statement that would define the nature of church relationship. And the Carlton president, a man named Bob Adras and myself, suggested, because the requirement was to take this covenantal statement to the faculty and to the board of trustees to get approval. And what we both said, no way our board of trustees <laughs> or our faculty would approve this. So let's change the nature of our relationship. Let's just create a group called Historically Related Colleges. We'll get no money, but still acknowledge that they were created by this denomination. Uh-huh. So Grinnell and Carleton, it turned out Beloit also was another congregational college. And Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania, which was in our college, Voluntary internet. The, the Rippon president, and Rippon was a congregational college too, thought he could get it through his faculty. He got shot down. <laughs> so ultimately, those were the five colleges that became historically related uh, Grinnell, Carleton, Beloit, Rippon, and Franklin and Marshall. Huh. So terminating the financial relationship was that kind of the last, the last straw of like the relationship? And it's in its formal nature? I say so. The only thing that we agreed to do, and we still do, I think, is we acknowledge our connection, uh, historical connection, in our catalog. Okay. You can find it there, but who pays any attention to it? (laughs) Yeah. So let's backtrack a little bit um, and talk about the social gospel movement, uh, which I think is largely occurring during the time and was kind of pioneered by, at least at Grinnell, um, the presidency of George Gates. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what the social gospel movement was and how it influenced Grinnell during that time? Sure. Um, and and that's, I'll go back even further, that if, if you or I were to sit down and talk with the trustees or faculty or students from the 1870s or 80s, we would think of them as, you know, a bunch of, you know, Biden the world Southern Baptists or something. <laughs> and various uh, strong doctrine, doctrines focused around the notion that Christ is the Son of God, is divine and human, and uh, his death, uh, is he dies for our sins, and it's through his death that we achieve salvation, you know, our faith, uh, faith in Christ and so on. Well, that doesn't sound very much like any theology you would hear on the Grinnell campus today. You hear it, but uh, not not predominantly. Well, all of this this religious energy that created the college begins to transform in the 1890s. And it's a national movement, but Grinnell happens to be one of the leaders of that national movement, the social gospel movement, where the focus becomes not so much Christ the, the man God who died for our sins, but rather Christ the great leader, teacher, moral example. So the, the living human being Christ as a model for human behavior, as, as, a, as, as our teacher. And so, and put it in very simple terms, in simplistic terms I'd have to admit, it would be sort of as though you're faced with a moral or ethical decision, and your first thought is, what would Jesus have done? So we're talking not so much about Christ, but Jesus. Mm-hmm. What would that man Jesus, who taught and uh, modeled human behavior, what would he have done? I will follow that direction. So that the social go- it becomes social amelioration, it becomes justice, surrounded by Christianity and the Christian church, and you know the the, the congregational church. 
And there were two major leaders of that movement, besides Gates himself, who was he was a congregational pastor who had come directly from the pastorate in New Jersey to the presidency of Grinnell, and was president mostly during the 1890s, and uh, became president in 1887. I think 1901 was when he left the college, went to Fisk University, the African American. Uh, school in Tennessee, and then ultimately ended up as president of Pomona. So he's president of three colleges, though in fact is buried out in our cemetery here at, mm. at Grinnell. I remember taking a group of students out there, and they said, our, the dormitories are buried <laughs> buried out there because Maine is buried out, uh-huh. there, <laughs> out, out there as, as well. Anyway, um, a man named George Heron, uh, and, and a post was created, a, a, a uh, faculty physician, endowed physician, uh, called Applied Christianity, yep. and Heron was the first holder of that. And as I mentioned last week, I doubt he was much on campus teaching students because he was always on the, what was called the Chautauqua circuit, giving lectures uh, in a social gospel vein. And he was dramatically radical because he didn't believe in private property. He was uh, and it was a real threat to the college and the trustees that there was this guy out there you know, saying Jesus and the disciples didn't have private property. Why should we have private property? Uh-huh. And so uh, he was, in that sense, an embarrassment. The trustees were all <laughs> over Gates to get rid of this guy, and Gates wouldn't do it, academic freedom. Uh, but just before Gates left the college, Heron left earlier, uh, ran off. He was he was a family, had a wife and children, but ran off to Europe with the dean of women's daughter. And so he abandoned <laughs> his position at Grinnell, and um, in 1903, I think it was, that they dis- discovered Ed- Edward Steiner, who was a congregational pastor, had begun as a Jew and then converted to cong- congregationalism and had, I think he'd had four different parishes and came from one in Ohio, Sandusky, Ohio, to become the uh, professor of applied mm-hmm. Christianity and was a great authority on immigration. Now then the next step is, what is Grinnell today? It's a it's an institution that believes in service that preaches and believes in service, draws students who have these inclinations, justice, openness, etc. And I see this it, it, within a more or less and almost entirely secular framework. So it's a progression through social gospel to today's sort of secular humanism that I think is a pronounced feature of Grinnell. Uh huh. Yeah, you mentioned that. Grinnell isn't quite number one for many things, but we are number one for the number of graduates that we send into public service, other than the Army yeah. and, and Yeah, almost the 42%. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, only half of what the service academies produce, but pretty right. good for the next highest of the non-service academies, 37%. So right. In, the, in that particular poll. Yeah, and that seems like a pretty strong uh, thread that you can tie from this, the social gospel movement to today. Yeah, um, I think so, yeah. What other values do you see carrying through from, you know, whether it's the social gospel movement or the beginnings of the college and maybe Grinnell's vision um, for the college or Gates' vision for the college, some of the stronger kind of influencers on the mission of the college? How did that carry through and what are the lasting elements of that that you see today? Well, I think academic excellence is part of that because... Anytime you establish an institution where the core curriculum is Greek, Latin, and mathematics, you have a fairly high standard of of academic challenge and accomplishment in order to to gain a degree. So that's that's their 
for sure. And uh, I'd say academic freedom. Uh, very early on, uh, the Presbyterians, who didn't have it at that time, a, a college in Iowa, were willing to establish a position or now professorship in theology. But they wanted to make the appointment, and they wanted to ensure that the theology that particular person taught was orthodox. Mm. And the trustees turned down that opportunity. They needed money. They needed professors, but they turned down that op opportunity because it limited the academic freedom uh, of the faculty and the institution. So I'd say that's another very important um, sort of goal of the college that I think it's carried out over the years. Um, Openness to all kinds of students early on for women. I mean, that's, that's a big step. Oberlin College in Ohio had preceded Grinnell. They were an older college. But there weren't very many institutions that were, were, were trying, to, trying to educate or thought it was important to edu educate women. Uh, we uh, were fairly early, though not by no means a pioneer, in admitting African-American students. During World War II or during uh, uh, the later phases of the World War II, as they began to release uh, Japanese-Americans, Nisei, from the camps, uh, Grinnell took quite a number into the institution mm. with uh, opportunities to get a collegiate education. And making education available regardless of financial resources. Now, that was limited because the college's financial resources were hugely limited until fairly recently. But uh, as we know, I mean, Grinnell today is probably the most accessible of all of the top colleges in the country with respect to Pell Grant eligibility and so on. And we do not saddle students with huge debt. We do saddle them with debt, but not we, we have the least debt of any college in Iowa in our, among our graduates. So... Uh, that's been a goal fairly early on, is it's, it's not an institution just for the elite, mm -hmm. but it's an institution for everyone who's capable of, of doing the work, if it, we can possibly make that, that th the case through financial aid and so on. Now, early on, I mean, it was, financial aid is a relatively recent phenomenon. But I, when I was president, I remember the, the, the graduates of the 30s, uh, late 30s and into the 40s, uh, who were depression students, depression families. Person after person says, I don't know how I got through Grinnell, but somehow Grinnell made it possible. And there was a treasurer named Louis Phelps, and they'd go see Louis, and he'd find him a job in town, this <laughs> sort of thing. Somehow, and they all talked about Louis Phelps. That, that, uh, you know, we had no money, but somehow I got through Grinnell. And these are usually pretty wealthy people. I, I tended to focus on my visits to people of wealth uh, who could contribute to the college, mm -hmm. who were enormously grateful. They, didn't, they never thought they'd make it in the way that they had. And the college somehow made that possible. So ac access, I'd say, is, a, is another element that's, that's pretty much in the Grinnell DNA. Uh-huh. So as... Students come in here first year to the college. You know, it's not really evident that we have this religious institution. As you talked about, it's, you know, it's a side note. It's a footnote in the catalog. But, uh, you know, you could go through your four years as a student here now and have no inkling that Grinnell was once affiliated with the Congregationalism. So why should a new first-year student learn about this religious history, and why do you think it matters to, to the current students? 
Well, it, it it depends. Of course, it depends on your attitude. Now, now Ben, you're a his, history major, so it's probably you think yeah, you his, don't have his, to convince history is important. <laughs> but we are products of our past. My uh, inaugural speech as president was titled "Our Future in Our Past." Mm. Let's look at our past and see what our future should, how how the past should influence the future. I'm a historian, as you well know, and and so I I think that. In order to understand what we are today and where we hope to go, it's important to know something about about that past, but also quite existentially. I think the percentage of congregational students or United Church of Christ students is lower lower than three percent at the college. I remember that was a figure when I was president, and it's probably even lower than I would imagine. And Roman Catholic students are the largest percentage. At that time, it was 25 percent. It's probably maybe a little less than that, partly partly because we're so international. But this is a campus where you can find, let's see, assistance with respect to any religious tradition that you're interested in or or from. Uh, so our international students uh, are given guidance from our chaplain's office, uh, Muslim students, Hindu students, obviously Jewish students. We've had a rabbi on, on the campus. So some of that openness about religion that congregationalists represented, I think, is still there. Uh, there's a lot more, in a sense, there's a lot more religion on campus than ever because it used to be exclusively Protestant Christian. Uh-huh. And, in fact, our admissions, in a study of Joe Rosenfeld I've done, when he was a student, our admissions was hugely in the hands of congregational pastors. We had no admissions office, (laughs) but we had events on campus every year that invited all the congregational pastors in the state to come. And, of course, that was partly an admissions effort as well as it was, you know, playing our role as a congregational institution. So... um, it's so broad now, so broad, and uh, all of that is encouraged and fostered on campus. Uh, and the campus is sensitive to the fact that there are these different religious traditions. And you know, we've already gotten it uh, for this semester from the dean's office, the Jewish holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh, expect that many of your students, Jewish students, will not be in class on that day and give them an excused absence, that sort of thing. The sensitivity to this multiplicity of religious traditions, I think, is part of that tradition. Mm-hmm. Well, George, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge on the religious history of the college. It's certainly a, a fascinating and, and worthwhile theme, and I look forward to talking to you maybe next time about uh, Joe Rosenfield and his influence on the college. I'll be glad to do that. <laughs> and thank you, Ben. George Drake has been a student professor and president of the college during his time here, and he's still teaching tutorial this fall. If you're around town, you can see George making his way around, and you can catch him riding his bike to work, even when the weather gets nasty. He does it all, and for me and many others, really embodies the spirit of Grinnell. George was my tutorial advisor, and really still is my advisor for life. He'll be back on the show before long to talk about his new book about the life of Joe Rosenfield, another Grinnellian who profoundly influenced the college. And that's all, folks. That wraps up the first episode of this new season. I'm looking forward to sharing more of these stories with you throughout the year. Next time, we're going to talk to the winner of the Grinnell College Innovator for Social Justice Prize, Shafiq Khan, the CEO of Empower People, an organization in northern India 
that works to eradicate bride trafficking and empower the independence, agency, and leadership of girls and women who have been affected by it. That's next time on All Things Grinnell. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski, Poddington Bear, Seth Hansen, and Will Bennett. If you'd like to contact the show, email us at podcast at grinnell.edu or check out our website, grinnell.edu slash podcast for more information about the guests from today's show. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. I'm your host, Ben Benversi. Stay weird, Grinnellians.